from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a Skype interview with Vivian Lee Gilliam and Stu Gilliam. Vivian grew up in New Rochelle, New York, when the school district was segregated. After a stint in the TV industry, Vivian married and moved to Italy. Vivian now resides in the Czech Republic. Still, Gilliam has been an entertainer all his life. He started as a magician, then a ventriloquist with the act Stu and Oscar. It was the Stu and Oscar act that got Stu into television. He ultimately became a stand-up comic on such shows as The Ed Sullivan Show, The Dean Martin Show, Hollywood Squares, and The Arthur Godfrey Show, to mention a few. Vivian and Stu live near an airport, so you'll hear planes flying overhead once in a while during the interview. I started with Vivian and asked her where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in a town called New Rochelle, New York, which is a suburb of New York City, located about maybe 10 miles away from uh, New York City limits. Uh, New Rochelle is also known as the uh, home of Robert Petrie from the Dick Van Dyke Show back in the 50s and 60s. So it is a real place. I was there and lived there most of my life until I became about 18 or so when I went off to university. It was a very interesting place in as much as the population is about 70,000 people. But Nourisha was also known for its first desegregation case of schools in the north. So it is a bit like the story of Little Rock, but done in the north. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? There was gerrymandering or racial segregation going on within the Nourisha school system. And they had rewritten the city lines or the various district school lines on the basis of where black people lived. They were trying to keep them in a substandard school, which was called Lincoln School. And a number of parents were very dissatisfied with the quality of education and the school itself and the materials that were being used. And they brought a case against the Nourishelle School Board to improve the education system or have the children bust out to other schools in the Nourishelle District. And so it went all the way up to the Supreme Court in New York State. So it was the first big desegregation case back in the late 50s, early 1960s. In fact, my mother was uh, the tutor of these children. There were 10 or 15 of them at the time because, in theory, they were not in school, and so the truant officers were after them and everything like that. It was a very particular time in history, I would say. Being a child at that time and of elementary school age, I really didn't understand totally what was going on because our home was in another school district neighboring to uh, where Lincoln School was, but I was two blocks away from Mayflower School. 
so I wasn't really affected by it so much, but I was affected by it in as much as these children were always in my home. My mother was teaching them. And when they were finally tested and admitted back into the school system, they were not just below grade level. They were three or four levels above their each individual grade level. So they lost nothing and actually gained. Whereas when they were at the Lincoln School, they had below grade level standards, both for reading and for mathematics. And what did you do after high school? I went to Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois. And then I got my master's at the University of California in Santa Barbara. And what did you study in these schools? Uh, in my undergraduate years, fine arts with a minor in theater and English and speech. And in um, the University of California, Santa Barbara, theater and dramatic arts. And were you an aspiring actor going, growing up? No way. <laughs> I was more interested in television and movie production. So let's say behind the camera more so than in front of the camera. Although during my university years, I did dabble as a, as a disc jockey on the campus radio stations in both universities. And then what did you do after you finished your schooling in uh, Santa Barbara? Santa Barbara, I moved to Los Angeles and got a job in the television industry. I worked first for the American Broadcasting Company. And then later for a talent agency, the Dorothy Day Otis Agency. And then later for a television company, Croft Television Productions. And after that, the National Broadcasting Company. So what was your first job at ABC? I was working in the unit manager's office. And they called me a unit manager in training. And I had a relatively low salary compared to everyone else there. But it gave me the possibility to meet people and to get my feet wet so forth in the television industry. Mm -hmm. And so what is a unit manager? The unit manager is sort of the liaison between the production company and the television station. He or she orders the equipment, the studios, the personnel, and so forth for every show that you see on a television network. They book the studio, they see about the personnel, they run up a uh, running log, which would be sort of like a script as to when they're going to set up, when they're going to shoot, what they're going to shoot, how long they're going to be there, and so forth. Where did you go after ABC? Uh, after ABC, I went to a talent agency, the Dorothy Day Otis Talent Agency. I worked as an account supervisor, which means, basically means I saw the money that came in and went for the talent, mm -hmm. the people that were working there. And then what was it that uh, caused you to leave ABC to go to the talent agency? It was a step in another direction. Mm -hmm. I wanted to stay in the, in, in the industry, and I wasn't sure if I would be able to stay at ABC. They gave me between six months to a year to find a permanent position there. And my six months was winding down, and I was getting nervous, and so I started looking elsewhere. And I still wanted to stay in the industry. That time was 1974. It was a bit rough economic situation for the United States. Not much different than what's going on right now, frankly where jobs were hard to come by and layoffs were happening right and left. So even having a master's degree did not really guarantee that you could keep a job or get a job. How long were you at the talent agency? One year and one week, I believe. Mm -hmm. And then I found an opportunity to move to NBC. And, and I stayed there for a period of a little over two years. And what did you do there? I worked at first in sales and then in the unit manager's office again. Mm -hmm. Then you left NPC and then what? At that particular time, I had been a Baha'i about two years and there was a call from the House of Justice for travel teachers. How, did, how was it that you ran into the Baha'i faith in the first place? 
I ran into the Baha'i faith under many different circumstances at different times in my life, though I was unaware of it. I'm of African-American origin, and my grandfather was one of the uh, key people in the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church on the East Coast. He had founded one church and saved another from bankruptcy. The one in New Rochelle was called St. Catherine's. And as a child of that church, I would grow up and go to church on every Sunday, but I could not understand why I went to school with folks of all different colors, and then on Sunday I would go to church and see only people of African-American descent. And I didn't think that was right. I think around the age of six or seven, I attended a Presbyterian summer school for children, and at the age of 15 I became a Presbyterian because there I saw the kids that I went to school with, and I also saw them on Sunday and got to play with them and whatever. And then at the age of uh, 15 or so, uh, I didn't tell you about my high school education. I did two years in a Lutheran high school, our Savior Lutheran High School in the Bronx, New York. And another two years, the last two, at a Catholic high school, Mother Butt Memorial, which is also in the Bronx, New York. And both of those situations gave me the chance to really do a very deep study of the Bible. And I got very curious as to why everyone went to different churches and if there was only one God, why in the world were people divided like this? And so I would often have discussions and arguments with my religious teachers about these particular subjects. I think when I was in high school at Mother Butler, I wrote my vision of what I perceived the world to be, which oddly enough, my mother saved because when I became a Baha'i, she pulled out this piece of paper and gave it to me and it was exact portrait of the Baha'i faith without me even knowing it. How's that? talking about the unity of all humankind, where God is one, where there are no divisions between people or religions. I still have this piece of paper sitting back in, in my home in the Czech Republic. That was my first intimation. When I went to Bradley in Peoria, Illinois, I read an ad about the Baha'i faith in a magazine. I do not know what magazine it was, but it was one of those things where you clip out and you send in your name and address, and they send you back a packet of pamphlets which is what I did. It was 1969. I got back this lovely package of pamphlets and a card if I wished to inquire further. And I read, it, read through everything. And I thought to myself, this is nice, but I don't know if I'm ready for this yet. And I set it aside. Saved it, but set it aside. When you say you're not sure you're ready for this, what did you mean? Well, it was 1969 and there was the Black Power Movement where you're talking about the unity of black people. I said, okay, before the unity of whole mankind, maybe I should get into this unity of black people. And so I set it aside. I didn't push it aside. I set it aside. Mm -hmm. My roommate at Bradley, turns out, who also was not a Baha'i, did work study. And the place where she did her work study was run by a Baha'i. It was a daycare center. And it was run by this woman who was a Baha'i. And she would always ask my roommate to go to these various gatherings. And in looking back to it, I figured out later those gatherings were generally holy days. And she would come back, and I would quiz her. I said, well, what happened? And she said, well, those Baha'is talk a lot of spiritual stuff, but boy, do they know how to eat. <laughs> then I realized also, one of the times that she was talking about this, it was a Yamaha before the Baha'i fast, and Naruz right after the Baha'i fast. Why don't you explain what those things are to the listeners? Oh, Yamaha is the period between the 26th of February and the 1st of March, which is a time of celebration and gift-giving and visiting the sick and the shut-in in preparation for the Baha'i Fast, which lasts 19 consecutive days, where we eat or don't eat or have anything to drink from sunrise to sunset, so roughly 12 hours a day. So before sunrise, you can 
eat and have some kind of something to drink, tea, coffee, whatever. And during the day, during daylight hours, you, you don't eat or drink anything. And, of course, there are exceptions to the fast. People who are traveling, people under the age of 15 or over 70, people who, who are ill and nursing women or pregnant women do not fast. They are not obliged to fast. Then, then you mentioned also Nauru's. Nauru's is the Baha'i New Year, which is on uh, the evening of April 20th, but technically it's the 21st of March, and it is our religious New Year, so it's time of celebration and renewal. And the fast is not only a physical reminder through not eating and drinking, but it's also a spiritual reminder of the things which Baha'u'llah went through during several periods of his life on earth. So it's a spiritual cleansing as well, and it's a very special time of year for prayer and meditation and thought. My roommate was always going to these gatherings, and I was never asked and never really inquired. Uh, so that was between the times 1968 to 72. When I moved from Peoria, first to Santa Barbara, and then to Los Angeles, and I began working at ABC, the secretary, who also was starting that same day in that particular office, was of Japanese-American origin, and she was a Baha'i. So she was the one who first told me that she was a Baha'i, and I said, oh, that's that religion that believes in the unity of all humankind. I said, yes. She said, yes, that's correct. And then she didn't say anything more. She didn't push. She didn't say anything. And I'm waiting for her to say something, and she's not saying anything. And so I just let it slide. And three and a half months after we met, she and her boyfriend had a lovely Baha'i wedding in Griffith Park, inviting the whole cornucopia of the Los Angeles Baha'i community at that time they were all different colors and races and so forth, and you had the Word of God, and you had singing and celebrating. And I said, okay, as soon as my friend gets back from her honeymoon, we have to go to some Baha'i meetings. And so when she returned, we started to attend various Baha'i meetings, and a number of months later, I declared, became a Baha'i. And what was it about the Baha'i faith that made you want to commit to it? The vision of the unity of mankind, mm -hmm. it answered all the spiritual questions and matters I had going on in my life, and also, also the material concerns, and it gave the possibility for eventually having peace on earth, and I wanted to be a part of this. I wanted to be part of the process. And what were the spiritual matters that you were referring to that the Baha'i Faith seemed to address for you? What I liked most about the Baha'i Faith was the balance, where you, there are no extremes, people who are pushy, people who are trying to convince you of something that they believe is right, people who are condemning others. I found no condemnation in the Baha'i faith or in its writings or in the Baha'is that I met and came in contact with. What was the impact of becoming a Baha'i for you? In terms of those who are around me, they noticed that I was happier, more outgoing, uh, I tended to be shy and kind of withdrawn, more or less, but I became more outgoing and, and happier. Uh, I remember one friend at NBC looked at me I, when I came back from pilgrimage. This is when I went to visit the Baha'i Holy Places about two years after I became a Baha'i. I went to him the very next day after I got back, and he looked at me and he says, What happened to you? And I said, What do you mean, what happened? He says, Where have you been? There's something that's happened to you since you've been gone. Where have you been? What have you been doing? And so I told him about the Baha'i faith and told him where I had been for the last few days or almost two weeks that I had been missing 
from California, and he just became mystified. He got this real misty look looking at me, saying, gee, I wish I could have that too. Hmm. I said, you can, Hmm. you know, investigate. For the benefit of the listeners, can you tell a a little bit of what you mean by Baha'i pilgrimage? A pilgrimage for a Baha'i means going to visit the holy places in relation to our faith. In our case right now, we go to Haifa in Israel. It is where the Bab is buried, who is the forerunner of, of the Baha'i faith. And it's also nearby where Baha'u'llah is also buried, the founder of the Baha'i faith. And also Baha'u'llah's son, Abdul Baha, is buried in those precincts. And we visit those areas and these buildings that are related to the time when they were living and when they died in this particular geographic part of the world. So you became a Baha'i while you were at ABC, and then... No, actually, I became a Baha'i when I was at the Dorothy Day Otis Agency. I became... I came into contact with it when I was at ABC. And you just continued that contact as you changed jobs. Yes, yes. I see. Now, you had mentioned at some point the Universal House of Justice. Can you explain to folks what that institution is for Baha'is? Well, I guess we should start off with the local spiritual assembly and then go on from that. In every town or city or village where there are nine believers or more, what is formed is called a local spiritual assembly. If they are only nine, they form by means of what is called joint declaration. That is, they say that they are Baha'is and they intend to form this institution. And if they are more than nine, they have an election. An election would be where we get a list of the names of believers in our geographical area. We pray and meditate. We read over the writings, and then we get a piece of paper. And we write down the nine names of the nine people that we feel can guide the community spiritually for the whole year. This happens on the evening of April 20th through the evening of April 21st, and it coincides with the highest Baha'i festival, which is known as Rizvan. And what is the significance of Rizvan? Rizvan uh, is in reference to the garden where Baha'u'llah himself made his declaration in the year 1863, where he proclaimed himself to be the one foretold to come to help mankind. God's promised one for us. And so this happens on a local level, around the world, in any Baha'i community. And on a national level, it also happens during the Rizvan period, which goes from the 21st of April through May 2nd. And on an international level, it happens once every five years. In fact, this year was the five-year period where they did have the international convention. And in the years when they have the international convention, also in the Rizvan period, then the national convention generally takes place a few weeks later in May, but only during this once every five-year period. And what happens there? All the members of the various national spiritual assemblies meet, and they have what is called the International Convention, where they discuss the affairs of the international community. Sometimes other national spiritual assemblies meet in smaller groups to discuss these things, and they gather together as well, and they pray, and they meditate, and they write down the names of the people who will then become elected to guide the Baha'i community on on an international level. Okay. And that's the Universal House of Justice then? Yes, that's the Universal House of Justice. Okay, and you mentioned something about a call from this institution that led you to the Czech Republic. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, it's it goes even further than that. 
I left the United States and moved to Italy. That was in September of 1978. And why did you do that? I moved, first of all, during a travel teaching trip, which means I travel lectured about the Baha'i faith, paid for by myself, where I went around to various countries in Europe and the Middle East and Africa during the period from August of 77 through December of 77. And I came into contact with many Baha'is around the world, and during that time, I met the man who later became my first husband. And he asked me to marry him the following year, which is 1978, and I came to Italy and we got married and we home front pioneered or we lived in an area where they needed Baha'is just outside of Florence, a place called Scandici. And we lived there for three years and then we moved to another area in central southern Italy called Latina, which is a town located between Rome and Naples, but it's closer actually to Rome. Did you know any Italian when you got there? Very little. Within six months I was fluid and it's my second language and Czech is my third. So language comes easy for you? It has. I mean, I understand a lot of German, Spanish, French, and of course a little bit of Persian and Arabic. But my fluency is English and Italian, and I would say my Czech is about between 50 and 80 percent in terms of being able to speak and understand. You said you were in Italy for 17 years? Actually, no, I was in Italy for 20 years. 20 years in Italy and now 10 years in the Czech Republic. What initiated you leaving Italy? Unfortunately, after 20 years of marriage, our marriage was having some problems and we separated. And I needed to find work to support myself and our two children. And so the children and I moved from Italy to the Czech Republic where I found work. Now, why the Czech and Republic? Because I, it was the first place where I found work to be able to support myself and the children, and it's also a fledgling Baha'i community. And so I moved there in August of 1998. And what was the work? Teaching English. I've been teaching English now at the University of South Bohemia in Cheske Budiovice for a number of years now. Sometimes as well Italian, but mostly English. So what is it like living in the Czech Republic? Italy is my home, but the Czech Republic to me is paradise. And what's the difference for you? Physically, between the two, climate. The Czech Republic is a little cooler, a lot rainier even during the summer, whereas Italy is very much like California, very sunny, very hot, very warm. The area of Italy where I lived in Latina is an exact copy of Southern California. And so when I was there, I felt very much like I was in California. When I'm in the Czech Republic, it's very... Green, very nice, the air is fresh, the lifestyle is very healthy. The people are very shy, so they're a bit different than the Italians. The Italians are more outgoing and a bit noisier. The Czechs are a little, bo little bit more reserved, but they're very nice and friendly. And when you make friends in the Czech Republic, you really make friends. I mean, they, they remain in your heart. I have so many friends in the Czech Republic. Whenever I have problems in terms of Czech bureaucracy, where I don't understand the legal ease of Czech, I just call on any of these friends and they help me. Now, at what point did you meet your second husband? Well, I've known my second husband for the last 34 years. Mm -hmm. I met him through some Baha'i friends. We became friends way back then. Mm -hmm. He went off in one direction geographically and I went mm -hmm. to Italy in another. He got married. I got married both in about the same year, around the, within a few months of each other. Mm -hmm. 
And then what unbeknownst to me, he separated from his wife the same time that I separated from my husband. But mm-hmm. we didn't become aware of this until about four years ago. I came to California to visit uh, some friends from my childhood, actually, that moved out here, and also some relatives, and then some my friends from university. But during the time I was out here, I looked him up, and the minute he found out that I was in town, we just spent all our free time together. And then I went back to the East Coast, where my relatives are, to stay with them. We talked every day, and then I went back to the Czech Republic, where I worked, and Skype was invented, and so we talked twice a day, and this went on, and back and forth, and... I think during the fast, not this year, so last year, he asked me to marry him. And I said yes. And at the end of June, when my semester finished at university, I came to California. We were married a few days later at the Los Angeles Baha'i Center in front of 40 friends and witnesses and so forth. And so is California now your home? No, actually, the Czech Republic is my home. <laughs> my husband, who is retired, goes back and forth, and I work there nine months a year. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. So, yes, I'm a newlywed. We've been <laughs> married a little over a year now. Yeah. That's great. So, as far as you're concerned, Czech... It's where I hope to bury my bones one day. You, you love it there? Yes. That's great. Yes, I do. Yeah. I do. That concluded my interview with Vivian Lee Gilliam, a Baha'i now residing in the Czech Republic. I then turned to Stu, Vivian's husband. I want to remind you that Vivian and Stu live near an airport, so you'll hear planes flying overhead once in a while during the interview. I started the interview with Stu, asking him where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up part of the way in Detroit, Michigan. Now, you have to remember that this was the early 40s. I had a great childhood. Well, let me give you kind of a background. My mother and father were married by my mother's father, who was my grandfather. William Tecumseh Beck was his name. I grew up in the church in that day and age. I sang in the junior choir served on the junior usher board, played softball with the church baseball team. We lived in a middle-class neighborhood. We had a vacant lot down the street from us. I had two buddies that lived in the same block. And in the wintertime, uh, the people that owned the vacant lot would flood the, the vacant lot. They'd put burrows up around it and, and flood it, and we'd Ice skate, I was never good at any ice skating. In the summertime, we'd play baseball and toss touch football around. I had a pretty good childhood. My dad encouraged me to develop myself. My, my pop was very good to me. So was my mom, as far as that's concerned. But just about anything that I showed an interest in, My dad encouraged me. He worked, my dad worked for Chrysler Corporation. He was an interior grinder for, oh gee, well he started before there was a union in the automobile industry. And he worked automobile industry and finally retired, but in my childhood, oh man, he gave me 
a lot of things that I don't know how many kids had the opportunity. I had one of those little motion picture cameras, the projectors, I should say, and had the films of Joe Lewis's fights and uh, some of the Charlie Chaplin silent movies. This was silent films back then. There were no, there wasn't any sound for, you know, home at that time. Uh, every Saturday I got to go to the motion picture house, see the movies. Uh, I had the chemistry set. I got the erector set, if you remember erector sets. I had an interest in music. Pop bought me a clarinet. And I started, well, I didn't really start with a clarinet. I started with a trumpet. My dad's mother, Ma Sally, she lived across town. And I guess I was about 11 or 12. I'm an only child, by the way. And when I was about 11 or 12, they had a family reunion that was gathered around my grandmother my dad's mother. And so I had first cousins come up from the Carolinas, which is basically what the family background was. My grandmother and dad and everybody came up from the Carolinas, that part of the family. Uh, most of his brothers and sisters were still down in Durham and Union in the Carolinas. And I was to take the trumpet to play at grandmother's birthday party. And I had a first cousin, still got him as far as that's concerned, Ralph, that is just about a year and a half older than me. And, of course, I was thrilled with that. And we got on the bus to go to grandma's house with my trumpet. We got off the bus. Without my trumpet. Oh, no. I never saw the trumpet again. Oh, my God. Veritably thereafter, right after that, I got a clarinet, a beautiful clarinet, with an ivory bell. I learned to play the clarinet some. Well, I played in the orchestra, the regular orchestra, but they had a modern music group. I guess what you would call a swing band. And I wanted to get involved in that, so I switched from that. I put the clarinet in the school storage and used a saxophone that they had. And by the end of the year, the clarinet had disappeared. Then I had a guitar. <laughs> Pop bought me a guitar. I never learned to play the guitar. Never did well with the guitar. From that... There was a movie starring Orson Welles called Black Magic that I had gone to see and became enchanted with magic. In a way, that was the beginning of my career in the entertainment industry. I left home at the age of 15 and became a professional entertainer. I left with the Michigan State Fair. At that time, I had migrated from, well, I developed the interest in show business. And upon seeing this picture, Black Magic, which was kind of a Svengali Trilby or a Rasputin 
takeoff where Orson Welles was a hypnotist. And I'm 12 years old. And I wanted to become a hypnotist because he had this power over people. And as a result, I started going to the public library and researching mesmerism, hypnotism, etc., etc. And that was all a clinical application of mesmerism and hypnotism. I actually mesmerized some of the kids on the front porch out at the house, but it wasn't fast enough for me, which led me into investigating stage hypnosis. Well, in that day, uh, Harry Blackstone, Dante, Thurston, were the big magicians. Today there is a resurgence of magic, the big stage shows like they used to be. And in that day, there were three stores that catered to magicians there in Detroit. I would go to the stores looking for information on stage hypnosis. Well, I picked up magic, some magic tricks, and in that social environment, I'd go in on Saturdays. Some of the guys that worked there took a liking to me, and the social circumstance was that people would come in and want to buy magic tricks for their children. And they would want to, they'd see something and say, well, is my kid going to be able to do it? And they call me over and I do the trick. They said, well, he can do it. Well, in that social environment, it was, well, if a little black kid can do it, my kid can do it. So they used me a great deal like that, and I got a chance to meet a lot of people. Well, in one store, they had a small room set aside with a stage because they show you a trick. They sell you how it's done. So for stage magicians, they had this small stage set up where they would demonstrate the trick or the illusion so that the magician could see the effect. If they liked it, they would then buy it. Well, on one of these Saturdays, a fellow by the name of Fred Mayer came in. He had a student. He was a ventriloquist. And he also made ventriloquist figures. You'd call it a dummy or a marionette. Ventriloquists call them figures. And he had two figures that he was demonstrating for this man and his son to see which one they wanted to buy. And I saw this and fell in love with it. And ultimately, I ended up, as one of his students, he made me a figure, a dummy, and the act became Stu and Oscar, Look Who's Talking. And as a result of that, I ultimately developed in the amateur ranks back in those days. Did amateur shows with Little Willie John, Jackie Wilson. The, the four tops at that time were known as the four Ames. <laughs> and when the Ames brothers came out, then they had to change their name that's how they became the four tops. Now, all of this was before Motown. As a result of it, there was a 
a circuit for amateurs. Actually, two circuits. One was white-oriented, one was black-oriented. And basically, I was the talking act. Everybody else was musical. We had musicians, we had singers, but I was the talking act. So I transcended both of these as a child because I was a talking act. So I was on both of these circuits as the MC. Even the white circuit? Yes. I was hot stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I was hot stuff because I was a novelty. I was a true novelty. One of the things, I just had the right personality. And so they took me everywhere. We're Romeo, Michigan. I campaigned for a presidential campaign in, in uh, Michigan. Chuck Stanley had a weekly television show called Chuck Stanley's Happy Hour Club that was oriented for children. It went on uh, right behind Soupy Stales right there in Michigan at WXYZ-TV. And once every two weeks, I was on the television show, Stu and Oscar. And the Michigan State Fair came up, and what happened was the rides and the shows were a big, big thing. The 10 days that they were in Detroit, the Michigan State Fair, they had double booked. They had one show in Canada and one show in Detroit. And so there was a black show, which on the carnivals was called the Jig Show. They had split it. So they were looking for local talent to supplement the show while it was there in Detroit. And they heard about me, and I worked that show for the 10 days that they were there. Well, at the time, I was 15. And the man that booked and managed the show had two daughters. One of the daughters was a contortionist, the same age that I was, that worked the show as well. And he prevailed on my parents that he would take care of me because he had a child the same age and wanted me to travel with the show. Well, by this time, I wasn't doing that well with schoolwork. And it was fairly evident that I was going to go into show business. And so I left with the Michigan State Fair, and I stayed on fairs for the next three years. At 19, I left the fairs in Chicago, actually in Champaign, and went to Chicago, where my grandfather, William Tecumseh Beck, was then pastoring a church in Chicago. Blackwell Memorial Church. And I stayed with him. There was a nightclub in Chicago that ran an amateur show. And the first prize on the amateur show, if you won the amateur show, you got a week's work in the nightclub. Well, I went on the amateur show and I stayed there for three months. (laughs) And ultimately... The juvenile authorities ran down on me and said I had to come out of that club. Well, at the time, I did not know, but I was working for the organization at that time. So what they did, they simply moved me from the north side to the south side, put me in another nightclub. And I stayed there for about two months. 
and the juvenile authorities caught up with me again. They transferred me again outside of Detroit to Calumet City, which was a strip joint. And I stayed there about three weeks. I didn't like it, and I went home. When I got home, it was just before Christmas. My mother had worked for the draft board during World War II. And when I arrived home, she said, you know, you've had three draft notices. And because she knew how the bureaucracy functioned, she was able to send the notices back because they didn't know where I was at that particular time. Well, while I was home, I got the draft notice. So she said, well, you got to go. At that point, I went into service. I did my two years. I got discharged from Fort Benning, Georgia. If I remember correctly, that was 1954. I got discharged at 12 noon, Fort Benning, Georgia. And at 8.45 that night, I opened at the Wallahaji Hotel in Atlanta, Georgia, opening for Louis Jordan and the Timpani Five. During that period of time, I guess I didn't get home for about three or four months. That was basically what I was going through and was always an inquisitive kid. So now there's a great time span in here now in which I travel the country and entertain what we call the Chitlin Circuit. The Apollo Theater, the Regal Theater in Philadelphia, Washington, Pittsburgh, and then what was called the Funky Four in Virginia. I worked nightclubs across the country. Prior to that, I had worked nightclubs around the country. But I was scared to go to New York, because New York was a big town. So I kind of skipped a little bit. I didn't tell you how I got to New York. I was working in San Antonio, Texas. Well, by this time, working the Chitling Circuit, I had worked around, and a lot of the acts at that time knew me. Everybody had been trying to get me to come to New York. Red Fox, Miss Wiggles. A lot of the acts around at that time had tried to get me to come. I was scared to go to New York. And I'm working in San Antonio, Texas. At this particular club, it was called the Eastwood Country Club. And the owner, I had been there, I don't know. I used to go down there and spend three months at a time between Houston and San Antonio. There were clubs in Houston, the Ebony Club, and Eastwood Country Club in San Antonio. They brought... Della Reese in. This was 1956-57. To work the Eastwood Country Club. Well, the little boy fell in love. <laughs> <laughs> and Della convinced me to come to New York. And that's how I got to New York. Signed with her first manager, and that's when I started working the Apollo and those those rooms, per se. I lived in New York for the next 10 years until 1967, 68. And at that time, they were starting Playboy Clubs. 
And if you remember the time, we were in the middle of a social revolution. The social dynamics of what was going on in the entertainment industry as an entertainer of color, if you could sing, dance, play a musical instrument, you could work any kind of club, white clubs, any anything of that nature. But talking acts, no, because nobody in the populace in general was interested in what a person of color had to say until Dick Gregory. And we're in the middle of this social revolution. They embraced Dick Gregory, and that's how it all started. I had a friend in Chicago, a fellow by the name of Finus Henderson, who was an ex-dancer and very, very well-respected in the entertainment industry whenever... Frank Sinatra or Sammy Davis Jr. or Tony Bennett was going into the Midwest. He would always be their forward man to set up the sound, set up the lighting. And he was just very well known. He got me an audition at the Chicago Playboy Club. I don't like to toot my own horn, but as a ventriloquist, I was very good. I went in and did the first show. In my opinion, I died the death of a dog. And Finus came backstage. He said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, the audience died. He said, you were going at light speed, and they were moving at about 35 miles an hour. They ain't never seen nothing like you. They didn't know how to take you. Over the course of these years, those of us that did comedy on the Chitlin circuit, we had to develop into writers. We all had to write our own material. Red Fox, Sloppy White. There were a group of us young comics that at that point, we were the second line on the Chitlin circuit. Flip Wilson, Scoy Mitchell, Erwin C. Watson, Jimmy Pelham, myself. We were under Nipsey Russell and first line, the top comics. Moms Mabley, Pig Meat Markham, they were the, the, the front line. And when Dick Gregory did the Sullivan Show, there were six of us that got together and said, if they go anywhere with black comedy, they got to come past us six. We're the, young, we're the young lions. We had a pot. There was honor. We didn't steal material from each other, but we all said, if you get a shot at a television show, We'll contribute. We just want you to be successful. Use any piece of material any of us have got for you to get over. I went in the first show and finally said, you're going to have to put the dummy down. But if you want to work, you're going to have to put the dummy down because you can't make this transition. What I'm getting to is I had become a writer. And the skit that I was doing at that time was evolved around the idea that my figure was a Secret Service man and had to eat at the card table with Caroline Kennedy. And that was the preface that I was doing comedy around, which was hard for them to grasp because the comedy was tremendously sophisticated 
Secondly of all, as a ventriloquist technician, we're doing this, I'm drinking water and smoking cigarettes, and he's singing, and at the end of the act, we sang together simultaneously. And it just blew everybody out of the water. He said, you can't do this. So I went out the next show, scared to death, and did 20 minutes stand-up, and I stayed on the Playboy circuit for the next three years. Now, I had lived around the corner within two blocks of the Ed Sullivan show. And for the next three years, I had tried to get an audition for the Sullivan show and could not. I was working the Playboy Club here in Los Angeles, and I had an opening act of a little red-headed lady that did impressions and sang in three different dialects. And she had an agent. And the agent brought the buyer for the Sullivan Show in to see her. He saw me and bought me for the Sullivan Show. So I did my first Sullivan Show. And I knew ultimately I was going to get a shot at television. I didn't do any dirty material. I had trained my mind so that I would be able to ad-lib if I was sitting down and being interviewed. That kind of thing so that I wouldn't have that second thought of having to censor myself. In that, I had written what was called Hawks. And I knew what the perimeters were. It was always five minutes or less as a stand-up. So I had this five-minute hunk. The way this thing was constructed, it tells a story. And the way the story is told, when I get to the end of the story, I mean, the overall hunk, it's what we call a walk line. I mean, it's barumpa. Bam! At this point in time, Red Fox has a nightclub here in Los Angeles. And he was having trouble filling the room. And at that particular point, I was kind of hot. So I went in and did a weekend for him. Because he had been very instrumental in my, my development. And while I'm in there, I meet a young man that professes to be Red's cousin. And he was managing the room. And the room was sinking, and, and he and I became friends. A fellow by the name of Al Waterford. What had happened was, Red's Club had folded, and I had gotten Al Waterford a job, and he had done very well. Al Waterford had a daughter. I ended up, Janae, being his godfather. We'll go down another year. And I run across Al, and Al starts talking to me about this lady that he met in the back of a taxi cab and this religion that he's gotten involved with. And he starts quoting this strange stuff, and I'm worried about Al. Oh, Lord, they done suckered him off into one of these cults. So I go to the Baha'i Center, and they got all these books. I went in and spent about $100 on books. I'm going to get Al out of this thing. So I take a weekend, and I go with these books out on the beach, and I start reading, because I'm getting Al out of trouble. And that's how I got introduced to the faith. Became a Baha'i, because uh, it answered a lot of questions that I had from my early childhood about religion. If you will remember, I was raised in church. My grandfather was a minister. And my first shows 
were church shows. The big thing was that it made so much sense to start with the idea that religion is one. There's only one religion, there's only one God. Made sense to me. And each of the major religions, no two of them appeared at the same time. Because each of the prophets were educators of the age in which they lived. And so you start understanding that it's a continuing story, and when you start to examine it in that context, and understanding the timeline in history, the writings of these successive prophets, but to me, the manifestation is the spirit of truth. And he visits us from time to time in different garb. But it is still the same spirit of truth comes to us in a different physical being and comes to us in a different time. But it is a, it's, it's a continuing story, continuing teacher. Now, I learned to understand how that works is that mankind in his infancy could only encompass so much. We have finite understanding. In our early stage, we were like children in a kindergarten. Well, a PhD can come in a room full of kindergartners. There is no sense in he going in there talking about calculus. He's going to seem like, comparably, an idiot because he's going to say, all right, children, we're going to lay down and take a nap. And what's he going to teach him? C.J. Because that's all they can comprehend at that level. So he's teaching at the capacity of his pupils. So the difference in the manifestation at every stage that he has appeared throughout the history of mankind, he's taught to the capacity of his pupils. It's been kind of a spiritual trip that I somehow had always exuded this temperament, if you will. It was why I was so successful on the Playboy clubs in the midst of that social revolution when there was turmoil. Because for years in Louisiana, no person of color could be on the stage at the same time a Caucasian was. I remember I'm on a Big Ten tour with Bill Haley in the comments on what was called a Big Ten rock and roll show. I was the MC. I had to announce Bill Haley in the comments and leave the stage before they could bring their instruments on stage. That was the circumstance in Louisiana. The Playboy clubs took the case to court and finally one disrobing that law. When they opened the club, they sent me there to open that room. Now I have to understand that that was a hot day. Yeah. That never been, it had never happened before in the state of Louisiana. And there was some tension. But that was what they sent me there for, and I dealt with that situation. Again, De Gaulle has just left Canada. There is a separatist movement. French-English. The French-speaking populace is very agitated at that time because the call just left. 
we're opening the Playboy Club in Canada. And the Playboy Club in Canada had two showrooms. Comics were top dogs. They hadn't trained all of the bunnies in Canada, so they brought bunnies in from different clubs around the country to staff for the opening. Well, the French-speaking wouldn't let the non-French-speaking bunnies wait on them. And the comedian in the other room was catching the blues because he didn't speak French. And I had two sisters that sang in about three different languages in front of me. And they loved them. And they sent me there to open that club. <laughs> I was a hit. Okay, because I had the right temperament. Bonjour, mesdames, messieurs. Now, that's all the French y'all going to get out of me this year. <laughs> But I had a 20-minute spot. The last 15 minutes, I say, I apologize for not speaking your language, but I'd like to do my closing in the international language of comedy. And I do a pantomime. Temperament and understanding and having a feel for people and knowing what needs to be done. They sent me to Boston to open the club. I opened the club in Atlanta. And I went to Jamaica and opened that room. And I worked those rooms in those days. Flip Wilson was working the Playboy Clubs. George Carlin was working the Playboy Clubs. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were a hot group of young com comedians. But I had the different temperament. I had the different temperament. And all of that was before television. But it was something that had always been guiding me. You can call it spirituality or whatever, temperament, whatever you want to call it. So that's, you know, that's kind of the way that it was for me. And so those are the steps that more or less I had been looking for those answers for some time. So a lot of veils were removed for me and a greater understanding of religion, its purpose, its cause, all of those things became clearer for me. The divisions and the misunderstandings became clearer to me, and I became old enough to understand people's egos and why there are divisions and sects and different so-called faiths. That's my story, and I'm sticking by it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stu, thank you so much. That's a wonderful story. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Vivian Lee Gilliam and Stu Gilliam. Vivian is a Baha'i now residing in the Czech Republic, and Stu is a Baha'i and was a stand-up comic in the era of The Ed Sullivan Show, Hollywood Squares, and The Dean Martin Show. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. 
your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.